I'm Prema Gurunathan. I'm Managing Director of Upstream and welcome to this uh, event this afternoon, My Entrepreneurial Journey with Mark Sanders, Executive uh, Chairman of Scale Space. Um, just one minute to introduce uh, Upstream. We're a partnership between Hammersmith and Fulham and Imperial College London. Our mission is to help um, transform the borough into a leading destination for the science, tech and creative industries, and also turn White City, which is at the tip of this borough, into a, an innovation district. So we do this very much through connections. So joining up, start introducing entrepreneurs to academics, to researchers, to corporates, and knitting this community of science, tech, and uh, creative industries uh, together. So um, at the very start of um, uh, my, my work here, I actually met Mark, and you know, we just always thought he'd be a good guest to kind of interrogate. So we're delighted to have him this afternoon. And the official line is that Mark is executive chairman of Scale Space, uh, which is a joint venture between uh, Blenheim Chalcott, which is a Hammersmith-based venture builder, and a joint venture between them and Imperial College London. I'm going to leave Mark to say a bit more about Scale Space, and we'll get to that during the questions. Uh, prior to this, it's fair to say Mark is, was a veteran of the financial services industry in the UK. Uh, he, he had senior roles at First Direct, Lloyd's TSB and Capital One. He then became COO and CEO of Fintech TDX, uh, which as our clickbait um, title says, he sold for 200 million in 2016. We can come into that uh, during the questions. Uh, since 2016, he rejoined Blenheim Chalcott to establish growth hubs for them in Nottingham, Manchester and London, which is where we met because their London H um, growth hub is in Hammersmith. And through and particularly in this role, he has been involved with, you know, speaking to a lot of startups, helping them grow and help helping people get to the scale up stage. Throughout Mark's career, he's been involved with what he calls innovational growth, and I think that's something we can probably quiz him a little bit more during the session. I, I always liked for the first question, it's a bit like uh, Desert Island is what music would we want to play? But let's plunge into the juicy bit first, which is how, what did it feel like to sell TDX for 200 million in 2016? And did you have enough to retire on comfortably or uncomfortably? Okay, well, thanks for having me. Um, and looking forward to being interrogated. Uh, look, so um, firstly, I, I should say I didn't own all of it, so uh, so I didn't get all the money. Um, I, I, look, I did. I look back on the sale, and I think uh, I was incredibly proud of the fact we built a business that was worth two hundred million, and the, the the sort of external validation of the effort that that gave us. Um, I think you know I was thinking. Um, thinking about what it felt like when we'd done the deal um you know i was elated but i was also exhausted it was you know it's a, it was a hard slog selling a business um but it was a great outcome for for our investors it was a great outcome for a lot of the team who worked there and um uh, i recall the day the deal got closed i was with a client um because work goes on and the lawyers were sort of wrapping up the final bits of the paperwork um and uh, i came out of the the meeting with the client got a message from the legal team saying it was all done and I went to ring my wife and my battery was flat uh, the, the phone packed up so um, and I was in London so I walked to the nearest Apple shop to buy 
a new cable because I was going to plug it into my laptop to charge the phone. And I got to the shop and I thought, no, I can buy a new phone. So my, uh, my big treat when we sold the company uh, was, a, was a new phone. So uh, it, was, it was hardly uh, going out and having a big uh, boozy lunch. But um, look, in truth, I, I guess I could have retired um, reasonably comfortably. Um, but it really wasn't, it, I mean, it wasn't really about the money. And, and, I, and I guess now it's not really about the money. For me, as a sort of thing around innovating and creating and doing something that you know, you can see the outcome of your effort. And, um, and so, um, yes, I might have had a little bit of a break, I mean, uh, after the deal, but um, I, wa I wanted to get back to something. And, and, and frankly, my wife didn't want me to be under her feet every day anyway. Oh, yes, we always forget the spousal uh, input into such decisions. So let's move on. So instead of retiring, or as we said, more realistically, starting or joining what we might call a traditional business, you rejoined Blenheim Chalcott, which actually had a stake in TDX, and you joined rejoined BC to set up and run their growth hubs. And what has that experience been like for you? And I suppose yes, the question is, yeah. Well, no, well, look, I think after the deal was done, um, so, we, so we actually sold the company back in sort of 2014, but I stayed on it as the CEO for 18 months. Um, and I stayed on because I wanted to do two things. I wanted to look after the people in the company through the transition, but I also wanted to, uh, and this was a bit selfish on my part, but we'd been doing a, we'd been working on a project with the UK government and mm -hmm. I wanted to get to the end of that. So I kind of, with that out of the way, I, I wanted to get back to something that was more more about innovation and more about um, startup and scale up. And, and at the time, TDX was it was a four hundred person company. It was international in nature. It had been bought by a big American company, um, Equifax. Mm -hmm. So it was a very different thing than it was when I arrived, when it was forty people. And I kind of wanted to get back to that sort of scale up phase. Yeah. And, and and I knew Blenheim Charcot. They they they'd been initial investors in TDX Group, and so I knew them. I knew the people, I knew Manoj and Charles, who were the founding partners. I knew their businesses and I, you know, and I thought I could help out and make a difference. Um, and, and for me, uh, and I wanted to do something a bit different. I didn't want to do something else in financial services. Um, and it's worked out really well because we've had the journey now of Accelerate Places uh, and then subsequently Scale Space. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited about what we've done and what we're doing because uh, I think we can make a real difference to the... Um, uh, scale-up scene in, in the UK. Okay and I think I sent you a, a bit of a briefing note before we got onto this call and we went through who had signed up for this event and I think we've got about 70% of people here who actually work for startups or have an entrepreneurial kind of sideline and what is the key lesson you think you know in, in, you've, you've been an entrepreneur you've helped entrepreneurs what's the key lesson entrepreneurs have to learn and what have you yourself learned from other entrepreneurs, both in terms of things to do and things, bloody hell, don't even go there? <laughs> uh, well, we, uh, we've only got an hour, right? The, uh, yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think there's something around um, really, really understanding the, the customer you're trying to serve. So I, you know, I think good entrepreneurs, they, they do have a sort of understanding of, of, of what they're trying to do, but they also understand the customers they're trying to serve. Because frankly, in most cases, if you don't have a customer, you really don't have a business. So, 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 so the, the kind of customer focus, I think, is a really important learning. And, mm -hmm. and then be really driven to solve those problems profitably. Um, I think um, 
we've talked about blending charcoal being investors in TDX. I think choosing good investors is important. And actually, I'd extend that more broadly. Get it, finding help from the right places, I think, makes mm -hmm. a really big difference. Um, there's a, I think there's a loneliness of a founder CEO um, uh, that, that makes you feel like you need to be able to do it all. And I think the really great ones are the ones who are, who, who are able to ask for help. And I look back on our time, and I think we were really fortunate to have Blen and Jarko because they, they had this network of other businesses. They built this experience of business building. Later on, we had Investcore who came in as an investor. And, mm -hmm. you know, I look back on that. I think they all really understood the business. They were very patient and supportive. And they brought more than just capital. So when we were sat around the boardroom, it wasn't a sort of very dry financial exercise. It was much more of a creative uh, discussion around where the business was and where the business was going. So I think, you know, I think entrepreneurs, I could talk about lots of things they need to know, but, you know, I think customer focus and, and learning to be humble enough to ask for help, I think, are two good bits of advice I would give. Okay. And can we just pick up on one of those, which is choosing good investors? When it came to TDX, how... What, how, how did, how did that process pan out and who did you, I mean, you don't have to give names, but who did you talk to and who was disqualified and perhaps for what reasons? Uh, well, uh, you know, I can talk about when we took an investment from Investcore. I mean, they took a minority mm -hmm. stake in the business and they, you know, we did a, we did a, a reasonably formal process of talking to uh, a, a number of potential investors. And, you know, I think, I think, what you should never forget it's a two-way process you feel you do feel like it's a bit of i'm trying to get the investor on board but but you know from their point of view they also see it as a as an exercise to get you excited about them and i think um you know the highlights for me of that process were uh, perhaps talking to other companies that the the investors had invested in to get to get their experience of you know what what it was like to be uh, a company in, in a portfolio of investments made by somebody. And, um, you know, there were, there were one or two where there were, you know, alarm bells around what that might feel like and how that might affect the way we ran the business. And so, um, you know, when I say Investcore had a sort of very patient attitude, it wasn't like, you know, we're in for three years and then we're out, we want, you know, to treble our money. It was, we believe in where this business is going and we're, you know, we're here for a sustained period and, we're, you know, we're, and we're willing to back it and see, you know, see how it goes. And that to me felt much more aligned to what we wanted to do as a management team. Okay. Right. Um, could we, again, on TDX, you spent nearly 10 years there. And if I'm right, about four and a half as CEO and about five as CEO. And, you know, I've read around and basically the view sometimes is that people who are good COOs may not be good CEOs because of personal attributes in terms of experience. And how did you make that transition from COO to CEO? And, you know, what insights or responsibilities did you find, you know, being a COO made, you know, how did that process pan up? How does that transition? And were there things you learned as COO that you think may have made you a better CEO? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, look, I think the COO role gives you a real insight into how the business operates, the machinery, the engineering, of the company so understanding the customers and how you're serving them understanding how the teams operate understanding how you go to market and how you deliver to your customers i think you know there's a bunch of stuff that you just get exposed to in the coo role. Mm -hmm. and, and and it's very hard then when you when you're ceo to, to to be too critical of you know how the operations work because especially if you build them 
Um, so, I, so I think, so I think for me, I thought I thought the COO role was a great stepping stone. I mean, it was also mm-hmm. great in a sense for the investors because they got to they got to see what I was capable of. So they weren't sort of mm-hmm. betting on me Im- immediately to run the company. So I think it worked well on on, on you know on both sides. I think the big, you know, there's some really big differences. The, the you know, the COO role typically can be a bit more internally focused. And I think the, CA, the CEO role is definitely much more externally, uh, has a, should have a much more external outlook. So the whole managing your customers, managing your investors, managing, you know, your, your presence in the market, I think is, um, I think is definitely part of the CEO role. And, and you know, I, I, I remember, you know, being uh, maybe forced would be would be the true um, reality mm-hmm. you know initially by the board to go out and meet customers as you know and I was you know I'm like well what why why did they want to meet me what have I got to tell them and of course they go well you know the industry right and you know what you're doing and you know the stuff that we're doing in TDX and you know they'll be interested in that and of course I was, I was probably a little too uh, too too shy about <laughs> what I thought I might know. And of course, the reality is, once you get out and meet a few people and you get different, and I think this is really important, actually, the, as you start to gather different perspectives and different points of view from your industry, then then actually your perspective is very valuable and different necessarily, and potentially different to other people's. And so actually then people do want to meet you. So, um, so I think, uh, you know, I look back on my career, I was very grateful for being given a bit of a kick up the bum and told to, to, to get out and meet people because... I, you know, I think that was a very good skill to learn. Yeah, I, I think when I met you and I, I just thought you're possibly one of the most understated individuals as in kind of, you didn't, you know, if anybody has a particular vision of what a CEO might be, you were very much laid back and I was going, oh, it's very nice. He's not up there, <laughs> very <laughs> understated. So um, could could we look into how, you know, those years at TDX when you were potentially thinking of a sale, how did you actually position it for growth first and then a sale? And what were the challenges faced at each stage in terms of the growth stage? And then, you know, getting to the, we're going to potentially get to this, we're going to try and think of selling this. What were the challenges at each of those times? Uh, well, so first I should say thank you for, for, for saying that I was um, laid back and, and nice. Um, that's not always been the feedback from people I've worked with. Um, the, um, you know, you know look, I, I do think there's something about the job which does require you to have a bit of drive and a bit of an edge. So, so I do think there are times when uh, I, I might be quite, quite obviously driven and assertive. But, but I also think, you know, maybe, uh, maybe this is me, but you know, I also think if you get great people set up to do great things, uh, then you can build a great business. So, I, so I was always somewhat captivated that the the idea of what was going to be successful was not about what i did but about what we could do as a team and and you know and, and that served me well um i don't think we i mean we talked about potential exits for tdx but i don't think we ever ran it um overtly to be sold i think we mm-hmm. we we focused on how do you build a great business and and so you know there's some pretty there were some pretty important decisions along the way around where we made investments in things that we thought were a competitive advantage. Um, there were, um, you know, a real focus on the quality of the revenues and the customers. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, as we started to grow, it would have been very easy for the company to have grown revenue very quickly with customers that may not have been perhaps 
as valuable as some of the ones that we did win. Um, and and you know the real, I, I guess the real win for TDX, you know, without going into the whole story about how the how the business worked, it, it was in the middle of the industry, so it put itself between customers and typically financial services and utility companies. And so by creating that sort of positioning, you ended up getting a bit of a network effect, and that that became a competitive advantage. So when you and then and then I think the thing we were pretty maniacal about was being able to describe what we had that was valuable. And, and I think this is really, you know, for me, this was a painful and hard learning, but I think it's really good advice. As you think about your business, there will be things within it that are, there are actually truly valuable that create value uh, in your organization as you deliver your product or your service. And the more that you can elevate those in your marketing and the way you describe your products and the way you talk to your customers, I think that that creates not only value potentially for an investor in the future but it also you know helps your customers understand why what you're doing is valuable and different than perhaps some of the alternatives that they might be able to get so i think you know as i look back on it you know this this focus on understanding what value was was a, was a big driver uh, thinking about where our competitive advantages came from was also a, a really important piece of work we we kept going back to um, and then the final one, and, and again, you know, anybody on 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 this um, on this uh, on this session who's an accountant, you know, this would be sort of blindingly obvious. But we did we did make conscious decisions to to try and secure recurring revenue contracts rather than one off revenue, and, mm -hmm. and one off revenue typically was bigger and and uh, you know was more profitable in the short term, but you know was by by its definition one off, and so. Uh, Make, taking some short-term pain by booking longer-term contracts that had recurring revenue, I think was a really important and um, distinctive part of what we did at TDX. And, and uh, let me tell you, as a chief exec, if on the first day of the financial year, you've got customers who are already contracted and are going to be paying you, that, that's pretty reassuring. But it, but it also demonstrates to investors, as we subsequently found, that people value your product on a recurring basis not just on a sort of one-off basis so i think that was a really big part of the story and how and can we kind of talk talk about your top management team at tdx you know how what what how did you get everybody aligned in terms of values goals and and you said you know the exit wasn't really on the cards it was very much focused on good growth and you know quality customers and all that how do you get everybody aligned and i suppose i'm delving into a bit into what was the company culture like how did you help foster you know the values and priorities that and the type of people how did you bring them in yeah i, I mean look we did <clears throat> we did lots of things i you know i think we worked really hard um to be able to talk about what we did um mm -hmm. and in a way that people can remember right and i you know we've all seen the we can do visions and missions and strategies and we can do priorities and you know and, yeah. and, and all and all of that's good right so that so don't get me wrong i think that's all very important but you know my test was you had to have something you could remember and you had to have something your team could remember so we always talked about you know tdx was there to make the debt industry work better for everyone you know and that and by everyone that meant customers and banks and utility companies and tdx and and the whole industry so and 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 of course that then you know you could tie everything to that so for, so firstly having a real purpose and you know um it's become quite cool to talk about purpose-led organizations but but i think you know I, I think that's really important right so if you can 
describe what you do in a way that grabs hold of people, then I think that's really, you know, that, that's a real big win as you're, as you're trying to get people on board. I think then, uh, you know, and as companies grow, you know, and I think this is really important for entrepreneurs as, com- as companies grow, this changes, right? When you're, I mean, when I, when I joined TDX and we were about 30, 40 people, you kind of know everybody, you can get them all together really easily. They, you know, you can do a Friday afternoon briefing and everybody hears it and it's, and it's great. When you're 400 people in five countries, it's kind of much harder. And in between the two, clearly there are points where the, the, the challenge of communication and alignment just gets different. So, so I think, and again, I, I reflect on this now and perhaps didn't really realize it at the time, but I do think part of what a CEO does and part of what a leadership team has to do is, is also as the company grows, think about the, the dynamic of how the work gets done and how you keep people aligned, not just the work itself. And I, you know, and I look back on things that we did around organizational design and how we managed prioritization and how we managed communication and how we managed, you know, um, uh, performance appraisals and everything else. And they, you know, they were, they all kind of flexed and changed as the company got bigger. But I think it was all around keeping people aligned, keeping people the sort of transparency of what's going on and how they fit to it and then and then a bunch of other stuff which again i don't claim to be an expert or uh, or an innovator in this but you know I, I used to go and get i used to go and get a group of people randomly every month and have coffee with them um you know at all levels in the organization not uh, partly because i like drinking coffee but um but mostly because um kind of hearing what people thought i think yeah. was you know, a real, you know, some of, and some of it really insightful, you know, and, and at times you get a little nugget of something that somebody in the organization really knows or really believes, but they just haven't been able to express it through the formal channels. And, and some of, you know, some of our, some of our innovations came out of stuff like that. Oh, yes. Okay. So uh, talking about innovations, um, can we move on to scale space where you are currently executive chairman? Could you tell us, and I've, I've deliberately been very uh, light on introducing scale space at the start because it's better coming from you. And could you tell us more about scale space and bearing in mind, I think some of our audience may not be uh, local residents, local businesses, and what does scale space hope to achieve? Well, look, I think scale space starts with a, a, a you know, a, an interesting fact, right? The UK is one of the world leaders in startups. I think, um, depending on which study you look at, but you know, we're in the top three. So in the in the in the world, we're kind of top three in starting up businesses, but we're not even in the top ten if you get to scaling businesses. Um, and you know, having the heritage of of Blenheim Chalcott, we um, you know we thought we knew something about how to scale businesses, and we thought it was odd and wrong that there were all these great ideas that never really made it to their full potential. So um, so scale space is fundamentally a community of business builders and we're there to help people scale businesses quicker and, and more successfully and a key point to this is the university connectivity so scale space in white city we have a lovely lovely new building in white city it's on imperial college's campus this is a joint venture in white city with imperial college london so access to all of their great know-how and talent and expertise right in the heart of their white city campus in in a beautiful beautiful facility that's been designed for scale-up businesses innovative companies to to be part of the community where they can where they can be kind of um you know 
brushing shoulders with other entrepreneurs, other other founders, and 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 leading academics. And so, um, you know, this idea of a community <clears throat> with with access to the kind of help they need that's really well thought through, that's got content, uh, that's got know-how, and that's got a network, I think is really, really helpful. And we, you know, we've seen that, you know, we've seen some of that with our own businesses in Blending Charcoal, and, and this one, it kind of takes that and, and, and really expands it to a much broader community. Um, and look, you know, it's not, uh, it's kind of hard to explain really, because it's not really just about a building, it's about what happens in the building. It's the, you know, the building is just a container. But we're, but we're, you know, we're now really, really excited that the building's open and uh, available for people to go and see, and and ready to welcome the next generation of of great scale-ups uh, in London. Thank you. And what's COVID nineteen done to 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 the plans when it comes to scale space? Is it what's has it done any change to your timing or anything? Well, we were originally planning to open the doors back in May so there's been a, there's been a couple of months delay and um, you know that's fine that that uh, <laughs> opening up a, a building to a community that wants to or has to stay at home isn't a very clever thing to be doing so so I think so I think firstly I mean COVID has COVID I think is good um, has has well, there's lots of decisions we made around scale space that have turned out to be quite helpful with regard to COVID. So mm -hmm. I think entirely by accident, but in, in a good way, we have a building that's really compliant. Uh, it's, in a, it's in a lot of open space. It's got multiple staircases. It's not a 30 story office block where it's gonna take you half an hour to queue for a lift to get to, to, get to your desk. Um, and it's got the latest air handling systems. So, so actually, if we'd, if we'd set out two years ago to build a building that was really, really compliant in a COVID way, I think we wouldn't have done much different. Um, where I think, uh, so in a sense, we've got, you know, we've got a, we've got a facility that I think is, is, is right for our time. And, you know, you don't have to commute right into the center of London to get there. It's, it's in, uh, it's in White City. The, um, I do think that everybody right now is cautious. Um, I think um, we see that, you know, t making commitments to taking space anywhere. Businesses are really thoughtful about that, but uh, we, we're seeing a lot of demand. And, uh, and you know, as the, as the economy is starting to open up and the government guidance is becoming, uh, becoming more open to businesses uh, getting their teams together, we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, a lot of interest in people coming to be part of Scalespace. That's great to hear. And um, it also, actually, if I could move on to my next question. So it's very much still about scale space, but it also draws on the experience you've had, you know, working with the Blenheim Chalcott portfolio and the work you've also done. In your experience, what are the key things that entrepreneurs who are scaling tend to overlook? What are the pitfalls that you've seen? Um yeah the, <laughs> i mean like i think we talked about one of these already the <clears throat> the you know noticing your business is changing as it grows yeah. i think is, is is one um you know 10 people is different to the two people sat around the kitchen table when it started and it's different to 100 people so so i think i think there's definitely not just focusing on the the product but also thinking about how the organization works i think is is something i think um 
profitability i think sometimes gets overlooked i i i you know i'm a bit old-fashioned on this um growth is good and showing a, a um top line revenue growth i think is good but but i think you know and it's okay not to be profitable but i think you have to know how you're going to be profitable mm-hmm. and we see you know even now we see you know businesses where they've got traction and success in in in, in attracting customers and they've got some revenue but you can't you can't see a path to profitability mm-hmm. and so i think i think that's a real blind spot sometimes and and then i then i also think there's there's just a little bit around and, and we've touched on this already but this this being open to feedback right this this idea that you might you might you know <laughs> somebody telling you your baby is ugly is horrible right but listening to that and go well actually do you know what i could make it better and that feedback's really helpful um it's very easy to be very and this is a contradiction and, and i'll accept that because i think really good entrepreneurs and and founders and, and CEOs are driven and they are very focused and they have a very clear sense of where they want to get to. But I think the truly great ones, uh, which I'm not saying I am, but I think the truly great ones are the ones who can listen to feedback and can factor that into their decision-making. And, and sometimes the, 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 the decision-making might be, I'm going to ignore that because I don't, I don't agree with it, but I've thought that through and I rationally understand and believe a different kind of reality. But the ones who ignore it, I think, do so at their peril. So I think I think the being open to and looking for feedback, good and bad, on your product or your service, I think I think is something that uh, is really important. And I think sometimes it is really overlooked. I'm going to take a question from Imogen here, and she says there are regional disparities that exist in support for scale ups in the UK. Uh, she said majority of support in London and the southeast. Does ScaleSpace plan to expand and improve support for scale-ups throughout the country? Well, that's a that's a very great question. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm sat here um, twenty miles outside Nottingham, so I'm not I'm not I'm not from London. Um, TDX Group, we built the headquarters was uh, was in Nottingham, um, yeah. and our growth hub uh, that we've got in Nottingham has gone incredibly well. And so, what's been really interesting to me is that as we've been working on scale space with Imperial College in White City, we've started having some conversations with other universities around the country about doing something similar. And there's a real interest in that. And I and and and, and look, I'd, I would agree with Imogen. I think innovation is not unique to London. I don't think creating businesses is unique to London. So I'd like I'd like to see, uh, you know, and, and this is part of our ambition to have a network of scale space hubs uh, around the country and, and and of course then the joy and the you know the, the, the thing we've seen in lockdown with all the technology that's available to allow people to collaborate um no matter where they are you know if mm-hmm. we start to build a network of scale space around the country then we can share the learnings between all of them and you know i think i think regionally they may have perhaps a different focus in terms of industries that they focus on depending on the kind of location or the university they're connected with but I think the diversity of thought and the diversity of problem solving and and uh, abilities might 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 just be you know really valuable to everybody. Okay, um, we we always have a little uh, kind of guess when it or bet when it comes to upstream events uh, since lockdown. How long it will take us to talk about Brexit or COVID nineteen today? It is forty eight minutes, which I think 
about our record. Uh, so we now have got the COVID-19 question, which is we've obviously had a few odd or difficult months with COVID-19. And I'd just like to get a sense of what assessment do you make of the UK tech industry's future as a result of this pandemic? You know, what areas are you optimistic? What areas are you pessimistic? And what has it done in your mind to invest in confidence and, you know, you get a lot of horror stories on VCs changing their terms and pulling out and ghosting people. Um, can you say, can you perhaps give us a feel of what, what you think is going on? I think there's a, a you know, so there's no, there's no, there's no question that, that the last three months have been, in, you know, different and in some cases difficult. And, and I think it comes back down to the sort of fundamentals. So, so firstly, um, you know, just just, and, and even more so, perhaps when you look at how the the countries are dealing with the the economic um, challenge. You know, um, the the injection of monetary policy it generally leads to more money being available to invest. Right. So, so money money is out there. Right. Um, what? A, but alongside that, I think there's a there is a lot of um, that, that there's a lot of uh, uncertainty. So you've got this sort of, you know, there's money, there's money out there waiting to invest, but there's an uncertainty about where to invest it. So I think then it comes back to fundamentals, right? So great businesses, and I th and I do think some tech companies uh, have seized the opportunities uh, that 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 COVID pre presented, and you know there are some very very obvious ones like Zoom, <laughs> of course, um, and and then there are some others who've thought about things a little bit differently but so 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 I'd, I'd say firstly I'm I'm optimistic that the agile and innovative scale-up businesses that can change direction very quickly if they're open to seeing what the market's doing what customers are really wanting and solving problems then I then I think they will come out of this as winners um, and investors and again, this is a bit of a cliche, but I do think, generally speaking, investors get really comfortable about investing in people and the team. I mean, we, Blenheim Chalcott, you know, we talk a lot about how we we think about first the team rather than the the, the, the business. Um, so I think if you've got a great team and you've got a great product or a great service and you've got, you know, you've got a plan, then being true to that, you, you know, I'm not saying you'll find an investor easily, but I think money is out there. It's just probably not quite as straightforward as it was three months ago. Right. Um, the one thing which has happened with COVID-19 is some people have, uh, I'm not going to see a lot more time in their hands, but they might have a bit more time in their hands in the evenings once you know children have gone to bed and you're no longer able to go out and enjoy the theatre or, or pubs. And uh, so assuming we have got a bit more time these days for reading, um, are there any particular books you would recommend either on the professional front that you found really helpful or personal favourites that, you know, you would recommend others to read? Uh, well, I've just, um, I've just finished reading Matthew Syed's latest, which, um, uh, I, we did a um, we did a webinar uh, for Scalespace this week, uh, which, which 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 I think will come out next week, which is talking about diversity and and um, it's it's a it's re it's a really really fascinating read. Um, See, so I'll get it wrong. I think it's called Rebel Ideas, but but the the um, 
it really hit home for me that you know we we talk about diversity and we sort of net it into a, a, a description of um you know sort of ethnic diversity or gender diversity and actually all of that's true but the, the, the real diversity you want to get to is diversity of thinking and diversity of of, of uh, perspectives and so i thought i thought that was a really great that was a really great book so i've enjoyed that um i'm currently reading uh, blitz scaling which um is a uh, it's an interesting read i'd recommend that one um i, I mean that's uh, probably we've talked a little bit about that today if you've if you've got a business where it makes sense to just go like crazy to grow it like mad because there's some sort of competitive advantage from that and uh yeah, some really nice examples in there like Uber and Airbnb. Um, so I've enjoyed reading that. Um, and then I and then I read lots of terrible trashy crime fiction. But um, I, uh, not sure I want to admit to any of that. Okay, I, I will admit to that. In fact, I think I admitted to that on the chat earlier on that. <laughs> yes, that, that is my guilty pleasure, which is a trashy uh, crime fiction. And uh, thank God for the Kindle. Um, can, um, Again, I suppose this is a kind of point that a lot of entrepreneurs get burnout, there's lack of work-life balance. What's your work-life balance been, you know, over the TDX years and currently? And what do you do for leisure, if anything? Obviously, you do read trashy novels, which is good. Anything, you know, what's the balance like, really? Yeah, and look, I used to be terrible. So, uh, uh, you know, and I think there's a bit of a hidden part of the sort of entrepreneur or the or the CEO that people don't see. So the late nights and the stress and the meetings and giving up holidays and stuff. You know, I can I can point to lots of examples of that. So yeah, you're right. You know, there's a there's a there's quite a lot that goes with this. Um, I you know this is terribly boring, but I you know I used to well I still do. I like I like washing cars and mowing lawns. And um, uh, my my wife, you know she gets quite frustrated about me going i'm just going to go and wash the car and um why do i like washing cars because my a lot of my life was was in fintech right and um and and you could never see what you made i mean the, the most exciting thing you might get to is what's our latest design for a credit card or what's our latest marketing pack um so i really liked the idea um or i really like the idea of doing something where you can finish it and then stand back and look at it and go i did that and you know so taking a dirty car and making it shiny is a perverse source of guilty pleasure for me. And similarly, mowing the lawn and then the lines all have to be straight and uh, and the edges have to be perfect. Okay, right. Um, I'm going to perhaps one last question, which is almost going back to the start, which is um, very odd way. I think that they do it the other way around in Desert Island is they kind of talk about your early years and then but we, we, we like being different so um, I think the question is you know can we just talk very briefly about your early years and what was your childhood like what were your formative experiences uh, well look, uh, so I, I'm the son of a greengrocer and uh, it was his dad's business and his dad's dad's business and it was a family it was a family business and it was started in the war and um and my you know my dad you know my dad was a super smart guy and he did very well and um so i was sort of born into a world where it was a little bit entrepreneurial if you can imagine um and it wasn't just a green grocery shop they did a lot of wholesale stuff and supplied lots of hotels and restaurants and schools and hospitals um but you know you learn you, you i learned very uh uh, very helpfully back then you know this isn't it's, in his world it wasn't just about selling it was about buying 
um, and that most transactions have two sides to them. And, you know, having gone with dad in the morning to the wholesale markets and seeing him walk five miles to try and get 2p off a cauliflower, um, you sort of go, what the hell was that about? And he goes, yeah, but I'm buying, you know, 2,000 cauliflower. So actually that makes quite a bit of difference. You go, well, I suppose it does. Um, and I think, you know, without getting too deep into the um, psychology of it, um, I, he, want, he, want, he, he loved science, right? And he wanted to go to university. And his dad was like, you're not going to university. You're going to come into the family business. And that's, that's just how it is. So, of course, as I was growing up, my, my, my dad was always adamant I, I shouldn't work in the family business. And if I wanted to, I should go to university because he kind of never had the opportunity. So, so I do think probably for a lot of my early life, um, probably until my 20s, a lot of what I was doing was because I kind of wanted to show my dad that what, you know, the, the choices he'd made and the opportunities he'd given me were um, valuable and that I was grateful. Um, and then, um, and then probably, probably after I got my degree and I started doing my MBA, I realized actually I was doing it for me. And, um, but yeah, um, that, my dad was a big, uh, a big input into how I turned out. Okay, that's a lovely story. Thank you, Mark. Um, I think we're pretty much coming to, we are at the end, okay? I, I think if we just draw a line after that. Um, <laughs> good time to say thank you very much to Mark. I think it's been a very insightful and helpful session. And uh, certainly from the people who've actually asked questions of all said thank you. So that's a good sign. Uh, thank you for your insights and thank you for your time, really, Mark. Uh, so as Upstream, we are delighted uh, to say we're also going to be working with our friends at Scale Space. For those of you uh, who are more on the techie side, London Tech Week has been moved from June to September this year. So um, we are working with Scale Space on, an a, on a blockchain event. And if you aren't already on our mailing list or their mailing list, please sign up so you can uh, hear about that. We're also, as Upstream, doing our usual tech showcase. So we've got five amazing speakers from, you know, clean tech, med tech, fashion tech, and fintech. So various sectors who uh, businesses based in Hammersmith doing, um, you know, kind of telling you a bit more and doing a Q&A. Uh, for the fun site, we've also got networking one evening, and we've got a bartender from a lovely, lovely place in um, Hammersmith called Kindred, and they're going to show you how to make cocktails. We would love to see you online. I think that's all really from me, and I think yeah. we've finished very much on time. Mark, thank you so much. No, thank and you. Thanks for having me. Very much appreciated. 